Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 16. We're going to read through verse 34. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching Uh, be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And since he himself gives, all to, uh, uh, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we get into this passage this morning I want to preach to you on this passage and on the theme, nobody is too far from God. I don't know if that's you this morning. I don't know if you woke up feeling that you just might be too far from God this morning. And I want you to know that nobody is too far from God. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we do come to you and we say thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us now as I seek to communicate this text, that I would communicate your word and not my own, that we would be recipients of it, hearers and doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I'm not churchy at all. That's what a friend said to me the other day. I was speaking with a buddy who is from the streets. All he's known is the streets, hanging out, hustling, trying to survive. We were talking about Jesus. And he was like, you know, nah, you know, I mean, it's not really my thing. I don't get it. I don't, I don't do it. I don't like it. And I said, you're not churchy? And he laughed, and he said, I'm not churchy at all. 
I have a burden this morning as I think about this text, and that is this, that there are those who just think Jesus is churchy, and since they're not churchy, Jesus is not for them. I am too far from Jesus. I'm too far from God. And where I'm particularly concerned this morning is that there are those of us who, who agree with them. There are those of us who, in the way that we pass over people, in the way that we ignore some of the hardest souls, in the way that we don't open our mouths and speak Jesus to certain people, because they're just too far from God. I want us to know this morning that nobody is too far from God. Let me say that again because I only got four amens. I want to preach to you this morning on this theme, nobody is too far from God. There we go. Look, we, we, we love to hear the story of the prodigal, but we loathe the prodigal when we actually see the prodigal. We love the concept of the prodigal son. We love the prodigal son in theory. It moves us uh, to tears. It moves us emotionally when, when, whenever we hear the story of that son who went away and squandered the grace of his father and, and ended up in a life of sin and then came home with nothing. Worthy of being nothing but a servant in the Father's house, if that. And the Father welcomes his son back with open arms, and we say amen, and then we go out and we loathe the prodigal son when we see him with our own eyes. I want us to see that nobody is too far from God. And that we as the people of God are called to go to those who are far outside of the body who are too churchy for Jesus, at least in their own minds. And I want us to go to them in love and help them with everything we can possibly do. Every analogy we can come up with, every word we can come up with, every phrase we can come up with, every picture we can come up with. I want us to help people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I want us to labor and think and pull out a thesaurus at, time, at times because we can't come up with the right word. Do whatever we can to help those outside come inside and know Jesus Christ is for them. I want to address two groups of people this morning. First, I want to address the group of people that might say, I'm too far from God. Maybe you're here today. I want you to be encouraged. Jonah was too far. Ruth, the Moabite, was too far. God even called Abraham, Abraham while he was a pagan, too far. But none of them were really too far from God, were they? God's grace is available to everybody, and I want you to know that today. I also, this morning, I want to address the missionary in the room, which would be the rest of us. Acts chapter 17 is one of the most important testimonies, examples of personal witnessing that we see in the Bible, certainly that we see in the New Testament or in Acts. As Paul here labors to use terms, ideas, words, and even poetry to try to help people see that they are not too far from God, but that God is near and God is ready to save. So I've got two simple points for you this morning. Point number one, some seem too far from God. Point number two, nobody is too far from God. Some seem too far from God, Nobody is too far from God. In verse 16, our story begins as Paul comes to the city of Athens, and he is waiting, as the text tells us. 
If you remember, Paul has been in Thessalonica. He got kicked out of Thessalonica, ran to Berea. He was in Berea. He had to get snuck out of Berea for his own life and safety. He ends up by himself in Athens. And I've got to confess something to you that I sometimes just want a day off. And I don't mean a day off from work. I just mean a day off from everything. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you just want a a day where you can just live for yourself. Not have to think about Jesus, the lost, mission, witnessing, none of that. So Paul is in Athens. I mean, this dude has been running from city to city. He's been uh, uh, persecuted. He's got death threats out there. Like, can't this guy just have one day? where he could maybe just, you know, do some tourism in Athens. Look at the city, look at the art, enjoy a gyro and some hummus or whatever they would be eating back then. Couldn't he just enjoy some Greek culture and have a day where he doesn't have to think about telling somebody about Jesus? Well, as Paul is waiting, he doesn't take a day off. Now, I don't mean there's never a day that we can rest. Paul certainly rested. But when he had an opportunity to talk about Jesus, he never ignored the opportunity. Are you with me? So Paul is waiting, and he's doing some tourism in the process. He's looking around the city of Athens, and what he sees is that the city is filled with idols. You see, some people, here's my first point, some people seem too far from God. As Paul's looking around the city, he sees a city filled with idolatry. Idolatry is not merely a problem of Paul's day, but idolatry is also a problem of our day. I want us to just take a moment and consider the problem of idolatry. As a matter of fact, I want to say this, that every problem in your life comes from idolatry or some form of worshiping something, going after something other than Jesus. Idolatry. Materialism. We hear about it. We sing about it. We think about it. Brian Sessions the other day, he posted this meme, which I thought was pretty funny on Facebook, he said, guys will beg for a ride to the studio and then rap about driving foreign cars. (laughs) But listen, I get it, because that's what sells. Don't pay for studio time and then not rap about foreign cars, right? It's what sells. But, But let's go a step further. Why does that sell? It's because everybody, whether you're rich or poor or white or black or middle class or working class or in the streets or in the boardroom, everybody has, has this idolatry of stuff, of things that we can go after. Everybody is tempted, I should at least say. I'm not saying that we're all given into it, thanks be to God. But it is all around us, regardless of the genre, regardless of your culture, regardless of your style, idolatry is all around us, the world tells us, if you want happiness, eat food. If you want a good time, drugs. If you want money, sell drugs. If you want fun, random hookups. If you want power, violence. If you want peace, this is the irony, war. If you want revenge, guns. And if you want comfort, money. There was a young man killed from our community that some of you know and have been friends with just two nights ago. I don't know the circumstances, but what I do know is this, is that violence is the fruit of idolatry. Why are we dealing with this kind of stuff? I mean, we can talk about sociological problems, We can talk about the music. We can talk about the culture. We can talk about oppression and injustice. And there's a place for all of those conversations. 
And at the center of it all is that we have given ourselves over to something other than Jesus. We're worshiping another God. The text tells us here in Acts 17 that when Paul sees these idols, he was provoked. That word provoked means angered. You know, when when Christians encounter a city filled with idolatry, when we encounter a human life that is given over to so many hundreds of different idols, it should cause some kind of anger in us. Now, I don't mean an ungodly anger that lashes out and gets mean, but we ought to be provoked, not just for the individual, but because we believe in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And God is a jealous God. God is provoked with idolatry, and those of us who have been filled with the Spirit of God then are provoked with idolatry, an idol is a representation of a God. Uh, meaning, whatever it is that we think we need for fulfillment, happiness, pleasure, and power, the idol represents the fulfillment of those things for us. And so because people have a city in their own heart that is filled with idolatry, it is not common for you to hear people say phrases such as, I have no need for God. Why would somebody say that? Why, why, why are you familiar with that phrase, I have no need for God, or they have no need for God? It's because they have so many idols in their life, they feel that they have no space. Amen. Come on, shout it. They have no space for another God. Are you with me? I know somebody is. You've heard it before. And they they just think you're trying to sell them something. I got no need for what you're selling me. In 2012, my wife and I took a trip to Virginia. We got this free uh, timeshare weekend sort of thing where they, they give you a free vacation and then they spend about half your vacation trying to sell you on signing a paper and getting into debt for the next 10 years, right? And so we did this, and it was actually really nice. We were in this little yurt uh, in, in Virginia, and we had a wonderful little time. Our girls were little at the time. And ever since then, for the last nine years, I get spam calls, all right? from P- my, It doesn't even say spam on my phone. It comes up as a legit phone number. Half the time, it's, it's the first three digits of my own number. I'm like, oh, this must be a buddy of mine. Maybe I'm calling myself right now, you know? And I answer it, and it's vacation destinations. We've noticed that you haven't used the rest of your vacation points that you have available to you. Uh, we just want to go ahead and get, let, let you cash that in. And I'm, I'm like, oh, my goodness, here we go again. And so I play with them, and I've acted like I was a godfather and was going to threaten them and different things. And, uh, but the thing is, is like, I feel like they're trying to sell me something, right? Which... I told one of them, I was like, look, they said, you're not, gonna, you're not vacationing anymore? I'm like, no, I'm going on vacation. Uh, my parents have an extra room in their house. Oh, so you're, you're, that's, all, that's all your kids deserve is just a trip to the grandparents? I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you're going to talk about my mama that way, right? <laughs> um, so I'm like, I've got no need for you, I've, I, and I don't want to pay the cost that you're offering, um, uh, which, which is being offered here. And I'm just simply saying, that this, saying it this way. There are some people who, when they encounter you, they just think of you as that spam call. And Jesus is, you know, yet another item that somebody's trying to sell. He's another product that supposedly can make their life better. And they're like, you know, I've tried Jesus. I grew up in church, as a matter of fact. And I'm going to tell you right now, he did not make my life better. It's a scam. And you're a spam caller. I've got no need for your Jesus. Now, ancient Athens is still to this day known for their Greek statues. If you've ever seen that famous uh, uh, sculpture of an Olympian disc thrower, 
That's from Athens. That was there about 400 years before Paul got there, meaning Paul likely saw that very sculpture. He saw many of the sculptures that you may have seen growing up in in, uh, museums or in magazines. These statues of naked Greek gods. I don't mean those kind of magazines. Now, if you go to a certain town, a certain section of of this town, what you would have seen, and this is likely where Paul was, according to some historians and scholars, there was a section of town where there was uh, square pillars all over the place. And a head on top of all of the pillars of the Greek god Hermes. And today, people still go to Athens and look at these wonderful, amazing works of art. But for them back then, it wasn't merely art. For them back then, these statues represented gods. They were idols. They represented what these people believed they needed for fulfillment, happiness, pleasure, and power. And as Paul goes around, he's first annoyed. And secondly, Paul engages. If you want a model for a witnessing, first, get annoyed. Secondly, engage. Paul engages. But he engages, church, listen, only after he's examined, only after he's listened, only after he's watched. Francis Schaeffer once was asked, if you have an hour to share the gospel with somebody, what would you say? And Francis Schaeffer said, if I had an hour to share the gospel with somebody, I would listen for 50 minutes. And then I would speak and tell him about Jesus for 10 minutes. His point was, I can't start opening my mouth and speaking until I know what makes them tick. Until I know what their gods are. Until I've taken time to examine the city of idols. So he examines, and only then does he Engage with them. But see, some people just seem too far from God. As he begins to engage, the text tells us in verse 18 that he begins to engage with Epicureans. Everybody say Epicurean. And Stoics. These are not easy, break-and-bake cookie recipes. These are what you call in theology tough cookies. Stoics. And Epicureans, Stoics were these intellectuals who didn't really think much of this physical life. They saw everything as quickly passing. They actually believed that suicide was a very dignified way to die. The Stoic was known to say, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. They were a very proud intellectual bunch The Epicureans were similar to the Stoics. They were also another class of philosophers. They were educated elites. They might be similar to agnostics today. They believed that after death, the soul was just simply gone forever. An Epicurean poem went like this. From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, meaning set us free, from love of living and hope and fear. We thank with brief thanksgiving whatever gods may be, that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. You would have been encountering these people and thinking like, man, they would never believe in Jesus. Like, I'm not even going to engage. I'm just going to enjoy this gyro right now because, or gyro if you're kind of a froofy-loofy kind of person. Um, because, man, they're not going to believe in Jesus. I'm not even going to try. Even the response of the Epicureans and the, and the Stoics is, is not encouraging. They, they, they hear what he's saying and they say, They call him a babbler. What's this babbler saying? 
Babbler there is a Greek word that would reference a bird that's flying around and picking up seed from here and grain from over here, just kind of a collection of all kinds of stuff. A babbler would represent somebody who would pick up a little bit of truth here and a little idea over here and then eventually kind of come bring these things together and then communicate as if he knows something meaning they have zero confidence that Paul has any kind of strong, logical argument that they ought to listen to. However, they have what's called the Areopagus. The Areopagus. When Montrell served at Coppin State, did some ministry over there a couple years ago, I remember Montrell would be in the cafeteria, and he, he would call the cafeteria to me, I think it was the cafeteria, he would call it his Areopagus. It was sort of this area where students would kind of come together and, and hang out, and they would be, be willing to listen to ideas and talk and share. That's, that's what was going on. There was this particular place that these philosopher was, philosophers would come, and it says all day they would do nothing but sit and listen to new ideas. It's amazing to me in our witnessing and in our evangelism when it seems that there is no way how God makes a way. How God brings Paul into this tough city with Epicureans and Stoics, idols all over the place, some of the hardest people to witness to, yet the, there is an Areopagus. There is a place where Paul is brought or invited to, and they actually give him a microphone. And they give them a podium and a platform, and they say, we want to hear all about these foreign deities that you're talking about. Aren't you glad that God gives us opportunities with those who think they're too far from God? Well, my second point is that nobody's too far from God. While it seems that some are, nobody is. If I could give Paul's speech here at the Areopagus a title, I would title it, Nobody's Too Far From God. I want to spend the rest of my sermon here just looking at Paul's speech and breaking it down together. First, I want you to see his cultural sensitivity in verses 22 and 23. It reads, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Well, therefore, you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. To an unknown God. Some people have suggested that it's possible that these, that these Greeks built an altar to every known God that they had in their dictionary, and then they built an additional altar to the God that they may have missed, just in case there's a God out there. They don't want to make him angry, and so they call it to an unknown God. Other histor historians have suggested that that uh, is unlikely, that what might be more likely is that uh, an altar would have been damaged, and the inscription would no longer be readable on the altar. And so as they repair the altar, they would just simply write on there an altar to an unknown God. Regardless, Paul sees something in their culture as he examines. And in his mind, he says, okay, this is going to be my launch point. This is going to be, I'm going to go from here and I'm going to build a bridge. I'm going to use this as a bridge to get to the gospel of Jesus Christ. My point is this, Paul, when he begins his speech, Paul begins his speech in their world with an idea that they're familiar with, with a symbol that they know about. It's, it's a good hook, isn't it? And he's going to bridge them from the God that is unknown to the God that can be known, the God that has made himself known. So first, church, listen, as you are going to those who think they're far, too far from God, number one, cultural sensitivity. Later, 
as an illustration for Paul, he quotes their own spoken word poets. He says, as your own rappers, Jay-Z and others, as your own poets have said, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. These are, these are ideas and images that they are familiar with, and Paul is boldly taking their own poets and connecting them to Jesus. I don't think that Paul is saying Jesus is what they were talking about, but he's using ideas and arguments that they have come up with in their own culture to make a logical argument for the fact that Jesus is indeed God. So first, then, is cultural sensitivity. Are you with me? Secondly, what we see uh, in, in Paul's speeches is, is skillful precision. And at, at this point, I get to my two points of Paul's speech. His first point is that God is not limited to our talent. And his second point is that God is not limited to our tribe. So as he goes on in his speech at the Areopagus, he says, first, God is not limited to our talent. And here's what I mean by that. We worship our own talents. We worship the things our hands can produce. Are you with me? We worship the songs we can make. We worship the money we store up. We worship the houses we build. We worship the friends that we can find. We worship the pleasures that we can create. But God isn't bound to our human hands. God, God is not limited to our church buildings or temples. God is not limited to our shrines or our idols. In verse 24, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, everything, listen, everything in it, even the stone that it was used to shape these amazing pieces of art, God is the maker of everything in this world. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he says he does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Listen, if you are too far from God, I want you to know that God is the God of you. In Psalm 135, the psalmist tells us that the Lord does whatever he pleases. In heavens and on earth, in the seas and all their depths, he makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. And then the psalmist goes on in Psalm 135 to say, and that he killed the firstborn in every Egypt. And he killed the, uh, King Sihon of the Amorites. And God killed King Og of Bashan, and God killed all the kings of Canaan. What he's saying is this, is that even the lives of God's enemies are in his hands. And the Lord does whatever he pleases. I want you to know that you are not an autonomous individual. You're, you're not just some, someone who is disconnected from God in the sense that you can do whatever you want to do and not be held accountable. God is your God. Whether you receive Christ as your Savior or whether you are under the wrath of God for all of eternity, God is your God. If you believe that you're too far from God, know that God is your God. God gives you life. God sustains your life. No one is autonomous. No one is free. And if you are engaging with someone who thinks they're too far from God, remember that God is the God of even this person, that God gives them life, that God sustains them life, that no one is autonomous, and no one is free from God. And I can hear you now, someone says, well, I don't believe that. Okay. You might not believe in gravity, but you're bound to gravity. I don't care if you don't believe in gravity. You're stuck to the earth. How much more so? It doesn't matter if you believe this. 
It doesn't matter if you reject this God. You are bound to this God. He is the God of everything. The second point Paul makes to the Athenians is, first, God is not limited to our talent. Secondly, God is not limited to our tribe. Look at verse 26. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined slotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. What he says here is in verse 26 is that God made from one man every nation. Now you've got to understand the Greeks saw themselves as sort of the upper class of the world. And they were not like the barbarians. And Paul is saying not just Athens, not just Israel. God is not limited by our tribes. But God is the God of every nation. God has, from one person, created all people. Meaning, whether we're talking about the nation of Israel or Palestine, whether we're talking about Af- uh, Afghanistan or the U.S., whether we're talking about one political party or another political party, whether we're talking about middle class workers or working class workers, whether we're talking about the streets or business owners, whether we're talking about east or west, God is not limited to our, our, our tribal boundaries. But God is the God of all. Now Paul, as he's going through this, is, if you know much about Paul's writings, he, he, he comes across as being unusually positive about humanity. You get what I'm saying, Christians? If you know Paul's writings? Doesn't he come across as kind of positive? about humanity. Man is looking for God, and perhaps we'll find him, he says. Now, Paul does not argue for the fact that that man, that humanity, will find God on their own, as if they can look for God and, and then on their own power find God. He doesn't indicate that at all in this text and nowhere in all of his theology. What he says here actually fits with the rest of Paul's theology. And that is simply this, that humans are created to be worshipers of God. And all human beings are therefore worshipers. Meaning they're looking for God is not to say that they are with a pure heart actually looking for God and will on their own find Him. But what, what he's saying is, is that as worshipers, they are looking for God. Does that make sense? They are, they are looking for something to attribute their worship to. They are, we are worshipers at our core. And so again, if you are unreligious, all right, you don't, you don't think of yourself as churchy. You don't, you're skeptical of Jesus or your friends out there. My point is simply this, is you are still a worshiper. It might not look like traditional religion. But you're worshiping something, and that takes us back to the conversation of what? Idolatry. And so this is Paul's application point. I got two applications from Paul's speech. Application number one, turn from your idols. Turn away from them, church. Turn away from your idols. Using the logic of of, of the Greek poets here, Paul basically says this. Your own poets said that we're an offspring of God. If we come from God, then how can God come from us? That's what he's saying. An idol comes from us. Meaning it doesn't make sense logically with your own poets. Isn't this good? We come from God. And so, so, so in verse 29 and 30, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, these times of ignorance, these, this crazy talk that you guys have, all right? He's saying this time of ignorance is coming to an end. Yes, God has overlooked it, but now he's looking right at the Athenians. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Your call on hearing this message according to the Apostle Paul is to repent, to turn from 
your idol worship and turn to God. We recently got a cat. Don't you love my little segues here? And um, I don't want a cat. I'm going to be straight up with you. This little thing attacks my feet constantly. He's still in that kitten phase. But we've had him for what, two months maybe? We haven't seen a mouse since we got the cat. That's the point. Actually, I take that back. We've seen three, and they were mutilated by the kitten. All right? We have had a mouse problem in our house since 2010 when we bought the house. All right? We've got neighbors. Mike Afalabi, I blame you, brother. We've got neighbors that I think have mice, and they just come from that house into our house. Jerry, you're on the other side. I don't know. <laughs> We've got mice in our house. We had mice in our house. So we, had, we called it an exterminator. The exterminator would come and, uh, you know, he sprayed around. And I'm like, look, I don't need you to spray. I don't think that spray is going to do anything about the mice. And... Um, the first exterminator we called just absolutely did nothing, all right? I got a number from Michelle, actually, for another exterminator. Never called him because we got a cat instead. If you need an exterminator, though, ask Michelle. She's got a good one, supposedly. My point is this, though. This exterminator would come. Well, supposedly, we, we, we wouldn't even see him. We would just get the bill for our quarterly extermination. I'm like, did anybody hear a knock on the door? Was there a ring on the bell? Did this man come into our house? Like, we've got mice running around, and I'm getting a bill from an exterminator that we hired to get rid of the mice, and they're not even coming in our house. They're just billing us, all right? What has your exterminator done for you? Church, what has your idols done for you? They cost you. They are extremely costly. Idols demand of you a price. I'm going to tell you right now, it's a price that you don't want to pay. Oh, they seem alluring. They seem tempting. It seems like it's going to, they, they offer the world, don't they? The bill comes on the back end. They don't talk about how much it costs up front. It's not until it's over that you get handed the bill. And it is a price that you don't want to pay. And let me ask you this. What have your idols done for you? They've done nothing. Your idols have done nothing for you. They are products of your own hands, and they fail you. And when they fail you, they highlight your own failure. The Greek gods had, or the Greeks, I'm sorry, had gods made out of stone. But how can a God made out of stone help a heart that is stone? Are you with me? The Greeks had gods made by their hands. But how can a God made by your hands do anything about the sins that your hands have committed? They've, they, the, the Greeks had gods that were of this world. But how can a God of this world do anything about your problem in the next world, church? I'm going to tell you right now, and I wonder if somebody agrees with me, that I don't need a God who is immovable. But I need a God who can rescue me when I am immovable in my own sin. I don't need a God who is nailed to the ground. But I need a God who took the nails in his hands and in his feet so that I might be forgiven of my sin and set free. I don't need a God who can be picked up and carried. But I need a God who can pick me up and carry me when I am hopeless and when I am lost. I have no way, but God picks me up by grace, day by day. Oh, church, that's the God that we need. 
Application number two. From Paul to the Greeks, he says, prepare for judgment. Prepare for judgment. Now, this is the most ridiculous part of Paul's speech to the Greeks in verse 31. He, remember, the Greeks don't believe in resurrection. It's, it's a foolish, crazy idea. And Paul says that there is one who's been appointed to be the judge. There's one who is coming as the judge. And he says that he has given assurance to us by raising him from the dead. Now, at this point, Paul is cut off at the Areopagus. They, they mock him. But then some believe. It says, but others wanted to hear more. And so Paul leaves, and what we see is that while some mock, others get saved. Look, not everybody is going to have the same response. When you go to the hardest of this world, when you go to those who seem so far from God, you will be mocked by some. Don't think there is some kind of magic bullet. If I get the cultural analogy just right, I'm going to win them over. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. We're not given that promise. Paul does everything he possibly can to help them believe, and he's still mocked. It's okay to be mocked, church. But some believed. And we give God praise for the sum. We're given their names. One of them was Dionysius, the Areopagite. Another one is a woman named Damaris and other women. They're converted. They turn to Jesus. They're saved. They believe. Two lessons I want to draw out from this text, and then we're done. Number one, the gospel offer is for all. The gospel offer is for, for all. You know, churchy folks sometimes act that if you don't know our church culture and our church language and our church habits, that the gospel really isn't for you. And we act like that because we use church culture, church language, and church habits in even our proclamation of the gospel. And so if you can't hop that hurdle, then you can never hear of Jesus. A buddy of mine told me about how he used to go out, he's a Christian, he used to go out and, and play basketball on the, on the, on the courts with the dudes from the streets, and it was a way for him to play ball, but then also connect with guys and try to tell them about Jesus. And, and he believed that that was a good approach because he himself was saved on a basketball court because some Christian was doing the same thing. And he said one day his church came out there, and he loved the church, but he said the church came out there to do an outreach, and he said it was a big disaster because they came out with their suits and their dresses on. And he said everybody, the, 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 the church came out, and they said, okay, everybody's got to stop playing basketball. Put the balls down and, and everybody meet our pastor. And everybody had to listen, he said, to an unintelligible message to guys on the streets. My, my point is simply this, is we got to do everything that we can to help people come to Jesus. Like they don't got to become churchy like us in order to come to Jesus. Are you with me? So Paul himself, he's like this cultural hybrid. He's fully Jewish, and he can speak well to the Jews. We've seen that. But what we see here is Paul is also a Roman citizen. He knows Greek culture, and he pulls his Greek card when he needs to. And I'm not saying that we need to be a cultural expert in order to be a good witness. If you don't know anything about pop culture, I'm not saying that you've got to go out and like figure it all out. But what I'm just simply saying is this, is we do want to be as helpful as we can. That's all I'm saying. Paul's doing everything he can to help them. And, and a one-size-fits-all message just doesn't work, and that wasn't Paul's methodology. Sure, Christ crucified. The message doesn't change on one sense. But in another sense, it does in that our communication of that message changes. Uh, for example, look how different Paul is, very briefly because i got to close, don't turn back and forth, but Romans 1 versus Acts chapter 17. Think about this with me. In Romans 1, everybody is totally depraved and cannot know God. Paul wrote that. In Acts 17, Paul says, I want you to know the God you have not known. 
In Romans 1, we see the utter wickedness of mankind highlighted. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, Romans 1.18. In Acts 17, Paul says, he is not far from each one of us. You see the difference? In Romans 1, Paul says, speaking to those who don't know God, he says, or uh, speaking of those who don't know God, he says, for although they know God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, Romans 1.21. In Acts 17, Paul says, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious. You see the difference there. Now, Paul's theology doesn't change but there is a drastic difference in his tone, in his presentation, in his communication. It is so drastic that some Bible critics have said that this Acts 17 speech is not actually Pauline. It's not actually attributed to the Apostle Paul. He never actually said it because look at Paul in Romans chapter 1. But there is no reason that we needed to come to that conclusion. Why? Because Paul became all things to all people. Paul was a missionary. One commentator points out that in Romans 1, Paul, the apostle, is writing to Christians, setting up a, a theological foundation for why we all need the gospel. But in Acts 17, he's talking to Epicureans and Stoics. So naturally, he's going to talk differently, church. You see, some Christians only have a Romans 1 message. And you don't know why you make everybody so upset when you talk about Jesus. You don't know why people immediately write you off as soon as you start talking. It's because all you've got is a Romans 1 message, and you've never once thought about what makes this person tick. How can I help this person to know the God that Romans 1 tells us they've rejected? So we get to know their ideas, we get to know their symbols, we get to know their music, we get to know their art. Maybe you listen for 15 minutes and then you speak for 10 minutes. But now there's also some Christians, other Christians, who really don't have any message at all. Because you're too afraid to go to the Epicureans. You're too afraid to go to the Stoics. You're too afraid to go to the streets. You're too afraid to go to the intellectual skeptics in your program. Because these people are just too far from God and they're not going to listen. Here's my last and final point. First, two lessons. Gospel is for all. Second lesson is the gospel promise is for all. Even the people that you think will never hear it. Too far from God. The gospel promise is for them if they believe. What we see here in, in Acts is a very countercultural message for the Greeks. It's countercultural in this way. The Greeks believed that the gods were far away. They, they believed that the gods were emotionally fickle, and they believed that the gods would never forgive the damned. But what Paul comes and says is that the God that you don't know about is the God of all gods. The God that you don't know about is the Creator God. Who doesn't live in any of these temples or any of these structures or any of these buildings or any of these idols? He is the God of all. He's the God of the barbarians and he's the God of you, Greeks. And by the way, he is not emotionally fickle. He is not far away, but he is near. And he is ready to save. This is the message we come with, church. God is near. Christ has his arms wide open, come to him now. You've fallen away, come to Christ now. That's your response. Come to him. Come to his promises. Come to his love. Come to his forgiveness. Come to his grace. Hear it and receive it as your own and say, that is my Savior. He is my God. He is my King. I am found by God. I wonder if anybody knows how good it feels to be found. Janelle Guzman McMillian was sitting at her desk chatting with her friend Rosa on the 64th floor as a plane struck the building. 
Janelle and Rosa quickly headed to the staircase and began going down each floor, one floor at a time. People were screaming and crying and scared. By the time they got to the 15th floor, Janelle briefly stopped to to take off her shoes. And in just a moment, the wall caved in. And dust and crumble fell all around her. She fell to the floor, pinned, stuck. Her arms were beneath her stomach. Her legs were crisscrossed. She tried to call for help and realized that her throat was clogged with dust and she couldn't make a sound. A spear was sticking in her side. And for 27 hours, she believed she would die. She prayed and asked God. Finally, at some point, someone grabbed her hand and told her it's going to be okay. She heard steel being cut above her head, and within about 10 to 15 minutes, humans found her. Am I going home, she asked. They said, no, you're going to the hospital. Her response, thank God, thank God. If Janelle can thank God for being saved from earthly torment, how much more can we thank God for being saved from eternal torment? If Janelle can thank God from being trapped under the weight of the Trade Center, how much more can we thank God for being trapped under the eternal weight of our sin? If Janelle can thank God, thank God for being freed and found and saved from her physical death, how much more can we be thankful before God for being saved from our spiritual death? Oh, church, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Does anybody know the joy of being found? Does anybody know the joy of having God come to you, grab your hand, it's going to be okay. You did not find me, but I found you. You could have never found God, but God found you. He has been with you all along and through the hearing of the gospel. God has revealed himself to you, filled you with the Holy Spirit. Oh, church, believe. Believe God. Does the gospel tell you that God is near and ready to forgive. It does. Does your gospel tell you that no matter what you've done, let me say this again, no matter what you've done, oh, you are never too far from God. Let's turn from our idols, church. Thank God. Thank God. I've been found. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a pretty good person like me. That's not how it goes, is it? Let me try it again. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast it is, church. Behold, the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Oh, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. And so therefore, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Hallelujah. Amen. To God be the glory, church. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. He loved us. 
He saved us. Those who were far off, brought near by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. Father, draw us near to Jesus today. Draw us near to the blood. Keep us in Christ, Father. Fulfill your promises to us. God, I pray for the person in this room who feels that they might be too far from you. I pray this morning that even now you would impress upon them this truth, no matter where they are in life or in their spiritual walk, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, thank you for finding us. Thank you for saving us. God, help us as a church to go to the hardest souls in this world and to help them as as much as we can, possibly help them to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.